May the Lord bless these readings, and with the Lord's help, I want us to consider these verses that we've just read in the Acts of the Apostles, and particularly the closing statement in the passage we read at the end of verse 17, where we read that Gallio, that's the proconsul of Achaia, he took no notice of these things. Now, one of the fascinating things in the New Testament, as I mentioned in the morning, is the way in which uh, some very important people appear very briefly in the Scriptures and then vanish away, and we hear no more of them. And I mean people who are very important in their own day, influential, very much so in their own sphere, and they suddenly appear in Scripture. They appear elsewhere too. You find them in secular history, and you find them sometimes, like I mentioned in the morning, on stones that are unearthed by archaeologists. But even though that's so, their greatest claim to fame, if you can call it that, now lies in the fact that just for a fleeting moment of time, they met the Apostle Paul the great apostle to the Gentiles. It was their privilege at the time, although some of them didn't realize it. It was their privilege to meet him and to hear the gospel from him. If you had told them at the time that their brief encounter with this man was the most important encounter they would ever have in their lives, they would have laughed in your face. They would have thought it a routine matter just as Gallio thought that dealing with Paul on this particular day was just a very routine matter. But the fact of the matter is that it was the most important meeting that Gallio ever had in his life. He would have thought that Paul was a nobody, or at best just a kind of flash in the pan. But like I say, he misjudged that. And I think we could say that in connection with the four Roman officials that are brought before us in the Bible, all of whom were privileged to meet the Apostle Paul. Only one of them realized the significance of that meeting. That was the man we looked at this morning, Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul of Cyprus. But certainly this man, Gallio, had no clue. Neither did Felix later have any clue, and neither later than that did Festus have any clue of how important this man was and how important their meeting really was too. And I think it's worth saying in the passing that that is true uh, of life generally and the way in which we view the things that happen, the things we see, the things we don't see, the things we look at, don't look at, the things we hear and the things we choose not to hear. You may consider certain things important in your life. If I was to ask you to list the most important events in your life, the most important days in your life, you would mention things like your uh, birth, of course, the uh, day you graduated or you got your first job or the day you got married or, in God's providence, the day you had your first child or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, if you are lost and... I pray seriously and sincerely before God that you are not. But if you are lost on the judgment seat and in the ages to come in the darkness of a lost eternity, you will look back at the most significant events in your life as being those days and times when Christian people spoke to you, testified to you, when you sat in church and when you heard the preaching of the gospel. These will be the most important occasions in your life, and you will see them then as being exactly that. And how differently you view these things now. This may be just something that you slot in on the Lord's Day before the real business of the week starts. How off we are in how we see everything, and how in need we are of the Spirit of God to see things properly in the way that we should. All that will become plain as we look at this man. 
Now, just as in the morning I said something about Sergius Paulus and his background and how he came to Cyprus and so on, I want to say a few things about this man, first of all, because he is better known, or was better known, in his own day than Sergius Paulus was in Cyprus. This man, Gallio, was born in Spain, but he was born to a Roman family, and he was born to a very distinguished Roman family. If any of you ever studied the classics or you had reason to read in classical literature, you have come across the name of Seneca, a famous Roman. There are, in fact, two, or there were two Senecas, Seneca the Elder and Seneca the Younger. Seneca the Elder was a, a rhetorician. In other words, he taught people how to speak, how to argue, how to win arguments. Rhetoric really was the art of public persuasion, and it was very popular amongst the Greeks and the Romans. But Seneca uh, had a son, two sons. One of them is this man, Gallio. The other is the Seneca that is better known. He's better known because he became a tutor to the emperor Nero, while Nero was still very young. And in fact, Nero, although he became really a monster morally and spiritually and in every way, for the first few years of his life he was quite sober. And in fact, in the first five or six odd years of his reign, he reigned well over Rome until Seneca died. It reminds us of King Joash. Uh, Joash, yes, who ruled well in Judah until the death of Jehoiada, the high priest who was mentoring him. Sometimes people keep us in check. And sometimes we don't know who we are until these checks and restraints are taken away. Nero was like that, and he became a monster. But under Seneca the Younger, he was disciplined and ruled well. Now, Seneca's brother is this man here, of whom we speak, Gallio. And Seneca himself, the Younger, was a very competent historian. His writings are still available. And he writes about his brother, that he was one of the most amiable, um, attractive, and personable people that you could possibly hope to meet. And if you would think, well, that's just him praising and talking up his own family, you'll find other Roman historians who agree. And that's why Gallio was more or less treated as a celebrity in his day, extremely well-known in Rome and well-liked. Now, shortly before this, in AD 51, he got what you would call his big break in politics because he was appointed to be proconsul of this province of Achaia, or southern Greek as we would call it today. The capital of it was Athens, but the, the real city uh, where you would want to be was Corinth. Sometimes I used to say tongue-in-cheek to people that it's a bit like Scotland because the capital is Edinburgh, but the place where people would most want to gravitate to, certainly at a certain point in time, would be Glasgow. Now, Corinth is where this man's seat of government was. And of all the provinces under the jurisdiction of Rome, this was one that people wanted. Sometimes you were sent where nobody wanted to go. It's like being secretary for Northern Ireland or something like that. You didn't want to draw that short straw. In fact, Judea was like that. And when Pilate drew that straw, uh, he didn't look forward to it. And we all know what happened there. But this was very different. This was a plum job. And Gallio landed it. And he must have rejoiced when he got it. But he had hardly taken office. And I mean a matter of months. When trouble seriously flared up in the city. Now it flared up because there was a, a rising tension. Between the large Jewish community that lived in Corinth and the new faith that started to appear amongst them, which started to appear just about a year before this when Paul first brought the gospel to Corinth. He had been preaching there for a year. He had preached in the synagogues with little response, but he had hardly left preaching in the synagogue when the ruler of the synagogue in God's providence was actually converted, a man called Crispus, and from there 
Jews were converted and Gentiles were converted. And the Jews were furious when they saw their own people turning away as they saw it from the faith of their fathers to embrace the faith of this hanged man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was as far removed from a Messiah in their estimation as any man could possibly be. And they were furious. Now they did nothing about it in the previous months because the previous proconsul to this was a strict man. He was very experienced and he wouldn't allow them to get off with anything. But now there's a new man in. He's a young man. He's inexperienced and probably easily manipulated or at least easily pressurised and frightened. So they decided to get a hold of Paul and just drag him one morning before the judgment seat which was stationed in the open forum in Corinth where cases would be judged at a certain point in the day by the proconsul. So here you have a mob, a kind of frenzied mob, and you know what they are like, and Paul was no stranger to them. Uh, Many's a time he met them and was rough handled by them, but the mob took him and dragged him into the presence of the proconsul. And the charge they laid against him was that this man, they said, persuades people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, I'm sure they opened out on that. Uh, They pled their case. They would have said quite a lot. I suppose to us there's an ambiguity there. When they said that he's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, I mean, our question is, which law? Maybe Galileo asked them that question, which law are you talking about? Now, the Jews were clever enough. They knew fine well that they had no traction appearing before Galileo talking about what was in the Bible and what was in the Jewish law. There was no way they could do that, and they couldn't hope to gain anything by that. Even when the Jews <clears throat> appeared before Pilate to appeal a case against the Lord Jesus Christ, they had to argue a ground on which Pilate would be likely to condemn them. They did the same thing here. When they say that he's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, what they're doing very cleverly is this. The Jewish religion had a certain status under Rome. It was a protected religion. In other words, they were free to practice it, providing they caused no trouble with it. And at the beginning, it seems obvious that Christians were treated by them basically as though they were still Jews. That's what the Jews didn't like. And when they're coming up here saying that the people are pers- that he's persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law, what they're actually saying is this. What Paul is teaching is wrong. It's against our religion. And if it is against our religion, then he has no protected status. And neither do the people who follow him have any protected status. You ought to deal with this man as a felon and to deal with him under Roman law. And of course, by doing so, they shut the door on the gospel in Corinth. They would shut the door on the gospel in Achaia and prevent it being published. Now, you'll notice, as I said in the morning, the way in which the devil is always wanting to silence the gospel, to privatize what God wants publicized, to trample down what God wants to be lifted up. And the devil just doesn't cease trying to silence the mouth of God's preachers, trying to silence yourself as a Christian witness. Is he being successful? Are there places in which you should have spoken? Times when you should have opened your mouth, but you're afraid perhaps of authorities and powers? If so, the devil is winning his day. But these were the kind of things at issue when they dragged Paul before Gallio. Now they finished their presentation. And we read that just as Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio actually preempted him. No. No need to speak. Then Gallio says 
what he has to say, which is basically, I'm not interested, and it's not relevant. And he dismissed the case. Um, in a way, of course, he dismissed it in Paul's favor, because not dealing with it meant that Paul could just carry on doing what he was doing. But as far as Gallio was concerned, he dismissed the case. And the locals who were looking on, they, they caught on to Gallio's attitude. The disdain with which he looked at these people and their arguments and their bickering, as the word could be translated. And they decide just to take out their anger on the Jews in the very presence of Gallio. We're told that a group of this mob actually took the ruler of the synagogue who was present at the hearing and they just beat him up in front of Gallio and the judgment seat. Now, you would have thought that an act like that would get them into trouble, serious trouble with the Roman authorities, but they knew which way the wind was blowing, and they knew that the person on the judgment seat just basically wouldn't care, and they were right. He didn't care. They beat him up, and Gallio took no notice of any of these things. It's an interesting thing that the man that they beat up was the new ruler of the synagogue. The first one had been converted, a man called Crispus, this man is called Sosthenes. If you know your Bible well, if you know it very, very well, you may remember that there's a man called Sosthenes who later, later accompanies Paul on his preaching travels. I often wonder if it was this man and if the gospel touched him too. I mean, we don't know about that. But in any case, the point is for now that Gallio cared nothing about any of these things. Now, when it says that he cared for none of these things, that's not a reference to the simple act of beating someone up in his presence. Mind you, you'll notice, uh, by the way, how sometimes a people can fall so foul of society that even the law starts to oppress them or to turn a blind eye to it when they are oppressed. We've seen that happening down through the years with the Jewish people themselves, which reach a point in Europe where they could be so persecuted that nobody really cared. It's a sad blot in this country that when the Jews sought sanctuary from Germany in the late 1930s that Britain closed its borders to them. That's a blot in this nation. And in fact, Britain was in control of Palestine at that time and blocked Palestine to them too. Uh, we forget some of these things for which God holds us accountable. But this is not just a reference to the fact that Gallio didn't care if a Jew was beaten up, just as our own authorities might not care very soon if a Christian is beaten up. It may care if somebody belonging to another religion is beaten up. But it's amazing how Christianity is always different. It's always treated differently, and it might not matter too soon if a Christian is battered to death on some street simply because he's a Christian. And the authorities may go, oh well, but they'll turn a blind eye, as Gallio turned a blind eye here. But when it says that he cared for none of these things, that's more than a reference to the fact that he didn't care that a Jew was beaten up. It meant that he cared for none of these things. He didn't care about the argument. He didn't care about the case. He didn't care about the dispute. He didn't care about the whole, the whole issue that was in front of him. He just didn't care. And in that respect, he becomes very like a modern man. I said today that one of the interesting things about these Romans is that it brings the gospel for the first time into contact with the Western world and with people who are well-educated and so on, and cultured, as they would understand culture in the Western world. And it's interesting to note how, by and large, they deal with the gospel. And here we immediately recognize Gallio. He says, I don't want to know about your words. If you're disputing about words and names, he says, and your law, says, I don't want to know about any of these things. That is so very 21st century. Take, for example, first of all, your law. That's how he describes the law of God, because that's really 
what he's talking about. If it is a question, well, he says in verse 14, if this was about wrongdoing or crime, I'd listen. But he says, if it's just a question or a series of questions about words and names and your law, then he says, look to it yourself. Your law. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews. And in the case of Paul, he's speaking to a Christian. What law is that? Well, it's the law of God. And what laws lie at the heart of the law of God? The Ten Commandments, which we're studying with God's help on Sabbath mornings. These Ten Commandments, which God, of course, thundered from Mount Sinai. Yes, he did. But before he thundered them from Mount Sinai, he wrote them on the tablet of the human heart, on Adam's heart, on Eve's heart. And every single child, boy or girl, that ever entered into the world subsequently, and when they grow to become a man and a woman, this moral, holy law of God is still written on their hearts. The fact of the matter is that even if Gallio says your law, it's actually a law that's written in Gallio's own heart. It's something that he knows instinctively is true. The truth about God and creation and right and wrong which is imprinted on his own soul. And whether he likes it or not, or whether he is aware of it or not, God is judging himself for the laws which he has broken the laws which lie upon him, these laws that he just pushes off himself and says they belong to you Jews and they belong to you Christians. And isn't that the way that Western culture views the law of God? If I would preach on the Ten Commandments, which I am, your average person may come in here and say, oh, that's all right for you. Uh, if that law is real, it's real for you. If that law is relevant, it's relevant for you. But it's not relevant for me. And it's not real for me. And for that matter, it's not relevant or real for my country and our country. And if we live together in this country, it's not under the basis of that law. It's under the basis of a law that I like and I find convenient as though there was another law which had the right to compete with God's law, as though there was another law that had the right to overrule the law of God, as though there was another moral law somewhere to which the law of God should bow the knee. That is decent. It's the law of God that should prevail in the judiciary, in the executive, in the government, in our schools, in our universities, in our churches, in our streets, in our neighbourhoods. As I said in the introduction to the Ten Commandments, it is the first series of commandments that should be written on the statute book, on the first page of the statute book in every kingdom and every country. But he can just say, it's your law, not mine. This law, this Bible, doesn't mine, doesn't belong to ministers, doesn't belong to elders, doesn't belong to churches, doesn't belong to the RP church, the FP Church, the Church of Scotland, any other church here or anywhere else. Orthodox churches, Catholic churches. This is the law of God. And it is the only law in town. It's the only law in the world. And it's the only law upon which we will be judged. We'll be taken to the bar of the judgment seat of God and this law will be the standard. We need to know that. The world wants to privatise it like Galileo privatised it. God wants it publicised, not privatised. Kept and honoured in society as well as in the individual life. So it's your law. But you'll notice also, and here's the Roman arrogance, you see here, uh, people looking at Gallio said that he had a, a very winning combination of Roman dignity and Greek culture. But he also had classic Roman arrogance. As far as he's picked up anything 
from what the Jews said to him when they were making their case. As far as he's picked up anything, and as far as in, in his life travels he's picked up everything, he calls the content of this law of God a matter, he says, of words and names. A matter of words and names. If this, he says, is a question of words, names, and your law, look after it yourselves. What's in a name? Well, there's a lot in a name. What's in words? There's a lot in words. Take the names. I mean, there's no doubt that there would be three names dominating everything that the Jews said to him. These names would be God, Jesus, and Christ, which is really the Greek form of the word Messiah, which means the anointed one. All these names are vital. All these names are precious. Take the name of God himself. Now, God has several names, and he has many titles. God itself is a reference to him as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Or take the term Lord, which is used to describe his sovereignty, the God of covenant, of mercy and grace. Take the highest name that he has, which is his personal name, the name Jehovah, which means, you'll remember, I am that I am. A name that reveals his self-existent nature, without origin, without beginning, without end. The name, as the prophet tells us, Paul quotes it later, the name that is above every name. As Isaiah says, the name at the sound of which in glory and at the judgment seat every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess. Paul actually, without shame and without hesitation, applies it to Jesus himself. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Jehovah to the glory of God the Father. Is that just a name to you? Is that just a name? Do you want to dismiss it as just a name? Lord, God, or Jehovah. Or take the name Christ itself. Messiah, an ancient Jewish word, referring to a promise that God gave from the beginning of the world, at least from the point that sin entered it, a promise that God would send someone into this world who would be anointed, fully anointed, to carry out the task that God would give him, which is nothing less than reversing the curse that lies upon the earth and taking sin out of the lives of all the Lord's people who are going to be saved from death and from hell and delivered into the great and glorious kingdom of God and his Messiah. All that is inside the name Christ the anointed of God. A reference to the fact that at a certain point in his life, at 30 years of age, the Holy Spirit came in his fullness upon Jesus of Nazareth to equip him as God's Messiah. Is Christ just a name? Is, he a, is his name a swear word? Is it a swear word on your lips? Are you sensitive to it? Do you see anything of its glory, of its splendor, and of its significance? Or take the name Jesus. Because the Jews, of course, would say that this man is persuading people to worship Jesus as though he was God. Well, the name Jesus says a lot. It itself means that God saves. And God told Mary and Joseph, her husband, to make sure that when this child was born, they would call his name Jesus, because he would save his people 
from their sins. Other people were historically called Jesus prior to that. In Jesus' own day, there were people who were called Jesus. And in their names, they looked forward to this man, but this man is different. You shall call his name Jesus because he personally will save his people from their sins. What a wonderful name that is. And the name of Jesus sounds sweet and it is precious to all who have come to know him as their saviour. Have you? But what's Jesus to you? What's Christ to you? What's God to you? Just names. Names. Well, that's what they were to Gallio. So, for that matter, was the name Jew. And so was the name Christian. I don't want to know about Jews. I don't want to know about Christians. Just as maybe you don't want to know about Jews, you don't want to know about Christians. Neither do you want to know about Hindus or Islam or anything like that. And you may even say, well, a plague and plague on all your houses. I don't want to know about any of you. And you may say that as Gallio would say it, with a haughty sense of superiority. He said, I'm well above all that stuff. He says, don't, don't bring that stuff to my judgment seat. Of course, he worships at the shrine of humanism which is a shrine where so many people worship as well. And at that shrine of humanism, the elderly are killed when they become expensive to look after. And in fact, eventually they're killed, even if they're not wanted, whether they're expensive or not. At this shrine of humanism where Gallio worshipped, where he had been brought up on Rome, if you didn't like an infant, you just put it out on a hillside and you exposed it and you left it, and that was okay to do that. Why? Because you didn't want it. Yes, humanism has its own laws. Of course it does. You know, there are people who say, well, you know, the source of the trouble in the world is, is religion. Really? Religion. Well, I suppose if you took religion out of every country then, I suppose if you genuinely took religion out, if you really took God out of every country, if you took the name of Jesus Christ out of every country, or the name of any other God, everything would be fine. And you'd have a, a lovely, peaceful society like China under Mao, or Soviet Russia, or North Korea as it is today. Lovely, humanistic countries. No, friends, religion is not the problem, and it never was. False religion, yes. The human heart that manipulates religion, absolutely yes. But religion, no. True faith in God and the life that is transformed by living faith in Jesus Christ is a force for good and always has been a force for good and will be a force for good in every home and in every church and in every community. History testifies to that. History testifies to that. But for Gallio, these things are names. They're not just names, they're words. Words. What words were these? Well, I can well imagine the kind of things that the Jews presented. They would have used words like justification, how you can really be right with God, or they would use a word like covenant to describe how God deals with people down through the years. Or they would use words like salvation and words of that kind. Oh, I don't want to know. Galileo doesn't want to know about these things. Heaven, hell, no. Not interested. How you can be right with God, how you can be justified, don't want to know. Sanctification, how you may grow in holiness, don't want to know. Don't want to know about any of these concepts. Words, of course, matter. And words are a matter of life and death. Everybody knows that when they think about it. There used to be a great controversy in the Christian church in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and it, it was about what kind of nature the Lord Jesus Christ actually had. Was he really divine? Or was he just like God? Was he really God or was he like God? One of these words in the Greek is homoousios, the other is homoiousios, homoiousios. 
One means God, the other means like God. And of course, cynics down through the ages have said, oh, well, isn't that typical? You know, the church going to war over a diphthong, the letters O-I. What a trivial way of speaking about the whole thing. As though, as though it was just an argument about words. It was an argument about concepts. It was an argument about truth. It was an argument about reality. At the end of the day, that argument was boiling down to simply this is Christ God or not. Because if he is not God, then it is not right to worship him as though he was. And if he is God, then it is absolutely wrong not to worship him as though he wasn't. That is a matter, friends, of life and death. And that is a matter of heaven and hell. And you can call it a war over a diphthong if you like. But words matter. Words matter. And the words through which God has spoken to us in the Bible matter. And he wants us to interact with them and to learn them. To know what they mean. Because our destinies really hang on them. It's easy to cheapen and to trivialize everything just like that. Justification is important. How can you be right with God if there is a God? The Messiah matters. Who is the anointed one and what did he actually achieve? Hell, heaven, judgment, eternity. Even the word truth. You'll notice when Jesus mentioned the word truth to Pilate, he just says to him, what is truth? Well, Pilate, it's a good question. But it's an extremely sad fact that the conversation ends there, and it ends by Pilate's choosing, because he walks back out to the Jewish people who want that man dead. Why didn't he stay for an answer? What is truth is a good question. But it's a question that can be answered. You know, in society today, it can't be answered. People speak about your truth and my truth. And that's true for you, but it's not true for me. What kind of talk is that? As though there was no objective reality. As though there was no absolute standard. Well, of course, in the eyes of the world, there isn't. Again, it brings us back to what G.K. Chesterton said, that when people reject God, they believe everything and anything and nothing all at the same time. Your truth and my truth. Truth. What is truth? And you can tell. I mean, if Pilate had really meant the question, he would have stayed around to see what Jesus said because he was already himself becoming fascinated with the man. He was already detecting that there was more to Christ than there was to the ordinary Jew. He was beginning to understand why people had a difficulty with this man. That there was much more to him than met the eye. And would it not then have made far more sense just to see what the man said? Maybe after all he knew what truth was. But you can tell the way he just walked away that he was a cynical Roman. He had given up on truth. He had given up on God's all that mattered now was power and everything that came along with power. The pleasures that came with it, the kudos that came with it, whatever came with it. Pilot, pilot. And you too. You too. What is truth? Do you mean that question? Do you want to know? Words. Words and names. And with Roman arrogance, he just dismisses it. And it's not just Roman arrogance, it's Roman ignorance too. Because after all, it's only ignorance that's really capable of arrogance. When you think about it, some of the most arrogant people that you meet are fundamentally ignorant. Because true knowledge and wisdom takes arrogance away and brings humility with it. But there's real ignorance here. You can tell that this man, even though he's educated and trained, he's absolutely locked in his own system. And he can't understand the fact that the dispute going on in front of him is the most important one that he'll ever deal with in his life. The argument in front of him, which he wants to brush off and does brush off, is the most important argument he'll ever hear. The case before him is the most important one he will ever adjudicate. And if he's in the bowels of a lost eternity tonight, he knows that. Like I said earlier, 
He knows that. I suspect, for reasons that I'll come to in a minute, that he is in the bowels of a lost eternity, although we cannot pronounce on anyone on whom the Bible does not certainly pronounce, and that includes each other. But the fact is that the Corinthians will excuse his ignorance. They wouldn't excuse ignorance in any other sphere. Oh, if he's going to be a proconsul, they want him to be a learned, uneducated, a learned and educated man. Except on this area of religion, we don't really care about that. Because in Corinth it was okay to be ignorant about these things. Just as it's okay in Britain to be ignorant about religion. I've said to you already that I listened to some debates by prominent people, prominent atheists and people of that kind, and they argue about the things of the Bible, and the minute they talk about the Bible, they only expose their utter ignorance of it. And it's a willful ignorance. I mean, if they really wanted to know, it's a knowable thing. They come out with childish arguments, as though they had never moved beyond year one or two in Sabbath school in their understanding of the things of God. The way they talk about Noah's Ark and the animals on Noah's Ark and things of that kind. Utter ignorance. But that's okay, you see, because they're talking about the Bible and they're talking about God. I mean, imagine if people were like that on other subjects. Imagine you had a reporter on BBC Scotland who was, he was reporting on the sport. And every single week he would mix up East Stirling or Stirling Albion or Queen's Park and Queen of the South. How long would he last? A couple of weeks and he's out of his job unless he brushes up and knows his subject. Or somebody continually mixes up the Liberal Democrats with the Social Democratic Party, which still do exist, out of his job. Know your stuff. But it's okay not to know your stuff when it comes to the Bible. In fact, you can wear your ignorance of this as a kind of proud badge of honour. Well, it's no proud badge of honour, friends, if we know nothing about our Bibles. There's a book that you have, and I'm quite sure you have it, and it is the Bible, and you should so much know something about it. Let me just say to you, kindly, that it's no badge of honour to you if you have a Bible in your house and you know nothing about it. Now, there may be various reasons that contributed to that, and I'm sensitive to that, but let me just say that as honestly and as clearly and as unmistakably as I can. There is no excuse for us knowing nothing about the most important book that was ever in the world and still in the world, and will be till the end of this world. And I don't say that because it's the foundation of Lewis' life and culture. The Bible is not that small. I don't mean that pejoratively. It's foundational to law. It's foundational to European culture, and beyond all that. It's foundational to our literature. It's foundational to our educational system. Our system of democratic government, representative government. Do we understand that that came from the principle of the eldership, as it is enunciated in the Old Testament and developed in the New? There's no prizes tonight here for treating the Bible as though it's just a collection of words and names that you can just toss aside. The Bible is God's communication down through history to every single one of us personally and to all of us collectively as peoples and as nations, ethnicities all over the world. And there's no excuse for closing our minds and closing our ears to it. In it, God speaks. Thus saith the Lord. And he's looking for your soul and for mine. And how dare we toss away the book before the book is even opened. But Gallio knows it's okay to do so in Corinth. And it's okay to do so in Rome, but it's not acceptable in the sight of God. The whole scripture testifies to God so loving the world that he gives his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we will all be judged by how we respond to it. And believe me, leaving it on the shelf unopened is our response. That absolutely is a response. You may say, oh, well, that's like I don't know when I vote. 
No, it's not like a don't know in a vote. It's not like an abstention in a vote either. It's a no. And it's no surprise, I suppose, then, that Gallio's attitude prevails when Sosthenes is beaten up. It's just another religious troublemaker. And who cares about that? But let's finish, friends, where we started. We started with something about who he was and where he came from. Rising up in Rome, getting this plum job in Achaia, where he doesn't last very long. The fact is that Gallio, famous as he was in his day, had a really short day, like many famous people do. He was favoured by Nero. Some of you know that some of these emperors were notorious for their fickleness people like Caligula and Nero. To be in favour with Nero one day would not guarantee you the next day. And he and his brother Seneca just lost favour with Nero absolutely and completely. And history tells us that they were both uh, forced to commit suicide, which was a, a so-called honourable way out. The Nero had his own ways of torturing people for his own pleasure, and he used them on many a Christian, many a Christian, uh, which he bitterly regrets where he is today. But he gave these two the honourable way out, Seneca and Gallio, of uh, committing suicide, just 13 years after this, uh, which is just around about the same time that Paul's head was removed from his shoulders as he was uttered into glory at the command of the same Emperor Nero. God's providence is a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. And in retrospect, would it not have been far better and far wiser for this young man to have said, when Paul opened his mouth, the Bible tells that Paul was opening his mouth if he had said, yes, Paul, Tell me, tell me what your message is. Tell me what this good news is. You tell me about God and tell me about this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you have your Bible, you have a preacher, you have Christian friends, you've got a church and a multiplicity of churches. Don't die of ignorance and its offspring, arrogance. Let us pray. <clears throat> Eternal God, help us to see ourselves in the Word. And uh, so often when we lift it up, it becomes a mirror to us in which we see ourselves. But it also becomes a mirror in which we see the Lord too, reflected there plainly. And we pray that while the gospel is still preached in our hearing in this world, that we would make sure that we listen to it. That like Sergius Paulus in the morning, we would allow it to speak. And not like Gallio this evening, silence it. For we ourselves can only be the losers. O Lord, help us to seek eternal life and to seek it where alone it can be found. In the one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's uh, bring our worship to a close, uh, singing the praise of God in Psalm 32. And at verse 8. I will instruct thee and thee teach the way that thou shalt go, 
and with mine eye upon thee set, I will direction show. That's a great promise from God. He'll teach us and guide us. And here's a warning in verse 9. Then be not like the horse or mule, which do not understand, whose mouth, lest they come near to thee, a bridle must command. And the two destinations of such people are brought before us. The stubborn, unto the man that wicked is, his sorrows shall abound in this life and in the life to come. But him that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass round. It's a beautiful picture of mercy just encircling him completely. You righteous in the Lord be glad. In him do ye rejoice, all ye that upright are in heart. For joy, lift up your voice. Eight to the end of the psalm. Let's stand to sing. I